Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Bird. Tonight, as the days get shorter and cooler, it's definitely time to think about that dreaded cold season and being all stuffed up. Uh, a writer for The Atlantic, Sarah Jung, took a deep dive into the nose and found out that everything she thought she knew about nasal congestion is wrong. We find out how that could possibly be. As we get used to standard time again after setting the clocks back early on Sunday, it got me thinking about Canada's only half-hour time zone. Newfoundland and Labrador, one of the few in the world. How did that happen? We head to St. John's to get an explanation. But first, they lit up the charts in the 80s and the 90s with tracks like Don't Forget Me When I'm Gone, Someday, The Thin Red Line, and Diamond Sun. Glass Tiger are still going strong decades later. They're about to hit the tour... They're about to hit the road for a quick tour of Western Canada to play some Christmas music and some of their greatest hits. Alan Frew and Sam Reed are with me to talk about tunes, tours, how they managed to write two of their biggest hits in the same afternoon, would you believe it? And the one artist they still hope to record with one day, they both named the same person. Find out who that is. Now, it was a sunny and warm evening in Montreal many, many years ago. I guess it was 1986. Wow, that's a long time back. The first time I saw this band live. And we begin tonight with Canadian pop rock icons, Glass Tiger. Tell me your favorite Glass Tiger song. We'll play some. Obviously, we're going to play some tonight. one 399 9898 is the text line. Your favorite Glass Tiger tune. Uh, there are many to choose from, right? one 9898 Again, the first time I saw them was right after, like 37 years ago, right after they released their first album, The Thin Red Line, in February of 1986. Of course, it was an almost instant smash. It went quadruple platinum in Canada, gold in the U.S. The debut single, Don't Forget Me When I'm Gone, which I'm sure you'll remember, The Follow Someday. They were written in the same afternoon. Can you believe that? The same afternoon uh, with the help of famed songwriter and producer Jim Valance. Um, Don't Forget Me, you must remember back to when it was just everywhere on the radio. Went to number one in Canada, number two on Billboard in the U.S., the single one, Juno, uh, for single of the year. The Thin Red Line won the Juno for the album of the year. And then the next year off that very same album, I don't know if this has ever been done since or before that, but Someday would win Juno for Single of the Year the year after in 1987, both from the same record. That's just how big it was. And after that massive debut, the hits would continue. Uh, there were two more albums in quick succession, Diamond Sun in 1988 and Simple Mission in 1991. Then the band, and you may remember this, went on hiatus for a decade. Now, since the early part of this century, uh, since the early knots, they've been recording and touring still and remain one of the country's best known and most successful pop acts. Over the years, they've toured with just about anybody you can think of. Rod Stewart, Tina Turner, Brian Adams, Journey, Julian Lennon, Cheap Trick. The list goes on and on and on. And they're back on tour at the end of this month. They're doing a quick Western tour. They're going to be in Calgary, Edmonton, Kelowna, Vancouver, and Victoria, combining songs from their 2020 Christmas album, Songs for a Winter's Night, of course, makes sense at this time of year. And of course, they'll be revisiting all of their biggest hits. It's been an incredible run that continues decades later. Lead singer Alan Frew, keyboardist Sam Reed, join me now. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks for having us. Nice to be here. I was trying to do the math. 33 came out in 2019. I guess we're in 2023. So this is a, this is a, a, a union that has, that has stood the test of time, the two of you. How does that work? We, are we still counting? <laughs> we still counting. I guess we stopped. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, well, you know, that's the one thing that um, 
I think we all look back with a, a lot of fondness that, you know, the legacy, it, it does go by very quickly, but um, we just recently, you know, got a lifetime, uh, like a, a walk of fame achievement award mm -hmm. and it, you're getting older, but it's also very cool that we're, we're knocking the door on 40 years together. And, uh, and, and that's, that's, we're really proud of that. I, I always think that one of the, the main things that remain for us is that we're all friends uh, you know, you get these bands that, you know, they crack up, they break up, they don't like each other, and then maybe they get dragged out because of money, and so they don't really like each other. We're sitting having a cup of tea right now. You are. <laughs> you so, are. That's that's friendship. That's friendship. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've truly remained friends. We hang out on the road. Uh, Sam and I see a lot more of each other off the road, you know, and uh, I, I think that's got a lot to do with it. Yeah. I, I mean, I remember seeing you in 1986 uh, at Jerry Park in Montreal. And I think one of the things that was so impressive about, about Glass Tiger, my dad was in the bar band business. And he said to me, that's a tight band. And, and I realized <laughs> everyone sounded like, I mean, you sounded so good right out of the gate, but you earned that. I mean, you had earned that through years of playing together. So that's why it, you were so ready for the moment, I guess, is the right word. Yeah. Uh, the industry thought we came from nowhere because that's what the industry does. You know, when Don't Forget Me When I'm Gone came flying out the gate and everybody was like, wow, where did these guys come from and the brand new? And, um, but we were well seasoned prior to that. Yeah. What was it like in those early days? Because, I mean, I remember back to those to when the album came out and just how huge it was. And then it was huge on Billboard. And, you know, and then you were playing opening for Tina Turner and playing with Journey. And it just felt like it, it all happened quick. Even even if you were seasoned, that's that's a daunting jump for any band. Well, it certainly felt a bit like a snowball growing. <laughs> uh, and that's the one thing that I remember. It felt like we were forever in the bar circuit, you know, doing showcasing and trying to get record labels out and, and management. And that took years and years, a very slow process. And then once the first album clicked and then we got the, you know, the record label on board and that mechanism kicking in and then some, you know, some promotion behind it. And then the country got to hear about us. Um, it's uh, it, it, it happened very quickly um, at that point. And I remember, <laughs> I remember um, um, Tim Trombley from Capitol Records at the time. He kind of knew what was down the pipeline for us. And he said to me one day, hang on to your hat. And I didn't really understand what he meant. Now I do. And he was just meaning like, your life's going to get really, really busy really, really quickly. And then we basically, our manager at the time told us that um, the plan was to do two weeks on and one week off. We never did that. He lied to us. So we would, we would do two weeks on and then another tour would be happening. And he'd say, well, you could go home or you could just stay on the road and do this. And then three months became six months, became, I think, 17 months, almost in you know each hopscotching, each tour, each opportunity. And like I said, you work so hard to get that uh, opportunity. You don't want to blow it. And he used to always sort of uh, play that card. He'd say, like, you guys don't want to blow all this hard work to uh, to not to just go home and relax. Let's go. That's a pretty good card to play. I mean, that works on a lot of levels, I suppose, but it must've been, was it all you'd hoped it, it would be early on? Was it, it because at, at one point it is all consuming, right. And all encompassing you go from being, you know, all the, I mean, being a bar band is no fun financially, but it can be a lot of fun professionally. Um, and yet here you are as this, all of a sudden it explodes and then the pressure's on, right. To, to keep yeah, touring I mean, and just keep doing it. it, it one of the things that, 
I'm sure we'd all agree with. You get a little, finally, you get a little bit spoiled because you have a road crew, right? And road manager, and you know, it's kind of like they set everything up, yeah. and you just kind of show up. I mean, these guys still, it's a little tougher for them with their, their gear, but for you know, Josh Mo here, I just had to walk out there and and sing, and we weren't used to that. We were used to grinding it out in the bar. So, um, but the listening to Sam speak, um, it sure goes by really fast because you're 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 incredibly busy. One thing after another after another, and maybe we didn't take enough time. I don't know how Sam feels, but we might not have taken enough time to take a step back and give ourselves a wee pat in the back and say you're doing you're doing a good you're doing well here. You know, because you're too busy doing your next thing. Yeah, making videos and, you know, writing new tracks. I mean, it, it, it is, uh, and also just the prolific amount of music you entered, you, you, you released over that, over that period of time as well. Uh, of course, now, now you get to do sort of pat yourself on the back. What was that first tour of Canada like? What was it like to go out and, because I think people always, you know, Canada, Canadian music by the mid 80s uh, had sort of achieved something that we hadn't really seen before. I didn't think, at least not in my lifetime. And all of a sudden you, there was part of this real Canadian pride in the music that we were that we had out there and the music that was charting in the US and the UK. And you were very much part of that. Was Did you feel that love when you when you traveled across the country? Well, the interesting story for us is the album got released and we were technically still a bar band, but we stepped on a tour bus to open for Honeymoon Suite. Uh, and I think the first show was in Kenora, Ontario. And then we had, we were heading West towards you and um, simultaneous to the song. Don't forget me sort of uh, quickly growing like wildfire at radio. Uh, by the time we hit what, Winnipeg, 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 our lives had already changed and we were going to do, you know, radio interviews um, ahead of the guys in honeymoon suite and, you know, they were the seasons, performers had the albums out, but uh, Don't Forget Me was dwarfing everything. And we were just, it just like took off like wildfire. And about the middle of Canada, uh, we started to take on almost like, you know, we could headline at that point. And we, uh, mm-hmm. interestingly enough, halfway through that tour, it dawned on management that we had a, a gig booked in Hamilton at Gage Park in a little band shell with little chicken wire fence. That was it. <laughs> and begging, saying to this guy, you you don't want to do this anymore. Oh, yes, I do. I've got you under contract. I think we even offered to buy him out, maybe a little extra. No, I'm doing it. And it was it was unbelievable. I mean, there was 20,000 people there for the sound check in the afternoon. There was 70,000 there by, and kids were fainting and get it. And we can't, we called it quits after what about four, three four songs four or five songs uh, the and fire marshal was there and i mean this guy yeah like we we kind of knew that this this guy had no idea what he was trying to do and the band had really clicked at that point and and he wouldn't have the security and he didn't have the security in that so yeah it uh, it when it did hit it hit very quickly yeah I'm I'm kind of obsessed with behind the vinyl, so I apologize. I watched all the Glass Tiger ones in the last 24 hours because they're so cool. But there were some really incredible stories behind some of your biggest hits. I had no idea that "Don't Forget Me" and "Someday" were written on the same day, like in the same afternoon. We uh, we arrived in Vancouver. It worked with Jim Valance for the very first time. Jim was a seasoned veteran by that time, and in the 
in the drive-in, he asks us who you're listening to these days, and we mentioned several bands, Jesus Jones and blah, 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 and mm-hmm. Fierce for Fears came up. So Jim runs into HMV or Sam's, whatever it was, buys a few albums, brings them to his house, and uh, we're sitting around over a cup of tea, and he puts them on a turntable. And it wasn't until Everybody Wants to Rule the World came on, and Jim went, ah, shuffle beat. And he runs to the drum machine or whatever and fires up a little uh, uh, shuffle beat. Conley and Sam come in, and we're all farting around on instruments, and I immediately go, I immediately go, don't forget me when I'm gone, as if it was going to be a verse. And wow. Balance says, oh, no, 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 take that and store that over here. And I'm like, okay, you can have that. And so blah, blah, blah. And then he has us bring it back as a chorus. And then we take a break. And these, these guys were smokers at the time. They go for a walk. They leave Valance and I alone. Valance does this little chugga, chugga, chugga thing. And I immediately go, when I come home, you telephone. When I come home, that's all I had. The guys come back. We all work together. And before you know that the day's over, someday, and don't forget me when I'm gone, are well on their way that day. I heard, I think it was Sam, I heard you say that was a good day, or it might have been you, Alan, that yeah. was a good day, and I thought that was that was a good career for some people. Like, that was a good lifetime. If you could uh, figure out that magic formula combo and uh, and harvest that every single day, you sit together to write songs. It would, and, it would and, be- and, you know, for your listeners, so mm-hmm. just to really show the power of that, two songs are written on the very first day of Revalence, and those two songs both won Juno Awards for Single of the Year from the same album a, a full year apart. It had never been done before. You know? No. For- yeah, it, it was... I, yeah, I, I was shocked. I mean, I really didn't know they'd been written on the same day. That's that's unbelievable. In songwriting lore. <laughs> yeah. The Thin Red Line is is, is always, was always my favorite. I was as a kid, I was a huge big country fan. Don't ask. I think I love the album cover. And then I hadn't heard anything even remotely like it for years. And I don't want to say it was wasn't whatsoever derivative, but it reminded me of it when it came out. And I didn't realize that that was one of the songs that you'd carried through from the early days. That wasn't a songwriting session in an afternoon. That was a song that survived the band's early days. One of the first things you put down and made it all the way through. And that's really impressive because a lot of bands early cuts don't make it into the onto the first big album for instance we uh we a couple of songs thin red line you're what i look for and i think ecstasy those three songs that made it on the thin red line album are from our earliest songwriting days when we were doing clubs um we used to play cover songs of course because you have to and we would mix them in with the cover songs and alan would say Here's a song called uh, from a band called The Thin Red Line or something. He just make up some so so the bar owner wouldn't get upset, and everybody was like, "Oh, that's an amazing song." They're like, "Well, it's it's our song," and we would admit after the fact. But those songs were strong enough that they they passed the test of time. And when Jim Valance went through with a fine tooth comb, went over all of our ideas plus the new ones we were writing. Those ones survived, and and he really loved them. And he said, "I I really like the songs, and I would never write anything like this." And I think he was very impressed with the, with those songs, the storyline, and the the heritage, Thin Red Line. I mean, we the, the the video ended up being almost a mini movie epic when we shot that, so it felt like a, a you know a really a really cool and to this day one of one of the favorite songs that we perform live. 
For a long time we've been telling Canada, everywhere we go, I make sure that we, that we tell them that we have to support all these men and women until we get you all home again, home with your families, safe and sound. And uh, I know we, we lost uh, three of our brothers uh, yesterday, but this is a song that uh, is really captured Every time we play in Canada, a lot of people from the families, from the armed forces, one of the Okamu, and this is a song that they attach to. And I'd like to dedicate this uh, to our fallen comrades today. We're celebrating life today. This is called Diamond Sun. Sam Reed and Alan Frew of Glass Tiger are with us this hour. We're talking about an upcoming Canadian, Western Canadian tour they're doing. A quick one, both in Edmonton and Calgary, Kelowna, Vancouver and Victoria coming up at the end of November and early December. Have a look in your neighbourhood uh, to see if they're going to be dropping by. Um, Remembrance Day is coming up and I remember distinctly when you went to Afghanistan. I spent some time at that air base in Kandahar as well. It's a, it's a strange, strange place. Uh, but what an incredible experience. I mean, of, of the many places you've seen around the world, that must really stand out as one of those moments where doing what you do allowed you to see something that you mightn't have seen otherwise. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, this guy to my left here, um, I was very proud of him because when, so I'll take you back. Uh, originally it was Bosnia. Mm -hmm. I got, I landed this, this gig in Bosnia and I, I called Sam and I said, hey, want to go to Bosnia? And I think he thought it was the name of a pub. <laughs> and, it wasn't. Uh, but it wasn't. And the two of us went to Bosnia and the two of us got in the bug. We got infected by the fact that these men and women are selfless and they're putting their lives on the line and I, I, no one's promoting war or anything. We're talking about people that enjoy being peacekeepers. They enjoy trying to bring uh, a, a little bit of sanity to regular people's lives that simple things they get killed for, you know, like with the Taliban and stuff like that. So we get really close to them. And then uh, we went, had we been to Afghanistan? No, we were heading to Afghanistan when I asked Peter McKay to bump you up. The, you, first time <laughs> we went, right? You, yeah, I wasn't the first time. Right. <laughs> Sam... Sam was in line to become an honorary colonel All right. and, and serve in the military. And so I'd become a wee bit pals with Peter McKay and, and they made him a colonel. I went to Ottawa to watch him become a, a colonel and we went to Afghanistan together and I'd be walking with him and they're going, sir, they're all, it, was, of course. it was unbelievable, right? We were over there and we just fell in love with the whole thing. He served... I think seven years. Seven, yeah. Seven years as an honorary colonel. Uh, we've been in Afghanistan like four times. We've been in Oman. We've been in Kuwait in, in Germany with the troops and the North Pole up in uh, CF, CFS Alert. And we just love seeing them and visiting with them and bringing a little bit of Canada in our pockets and sharing time with them. And, uh, and we both got the bug that way and we've enjoyed it ever since. Yeah, I heard that Diamond Sun was the song that 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 used to lift everyone up. That you you would expect it to be some of the other ones, but it was Diamond Sun that was sort of that little piece of Canada that you brought in your pocket for the for the especially in in Kandahar, which is such a, a truly, I mean, having been there, it's such a truly strange strange place. Yeah, one of I mean, performing um, we, we performed a full a full show um, for us too. The uh, it was very emotional because at that particular trip that we did, uh, there were two soldiers killed 
and and had to be repatriated back to Canada. So, you know, the one thing uh, we were wondering, like, are are they in a mood for a concert over there? And and General Natinchuk, who was our our host, basically said, "I need you guys to lift their spirits more now than at any at any other time." So they said, he said, like, please go out and 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 you know play play everything you've got. And it was probably the one of the one of the most unique concerts when we looked out and of course it's a lot of canadians uh, a lot of the allied troops as well and uh it, it had a very very special meaning and and diamond sun just seemed to be really resonating uh you know with them and 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 now when we play diamond sun i think it feels differently when we come back to canada and it, we we think differently about the song when we perform it live because of how they made made us feel about it and we would uh sam and i would go outside the wire like we would go in the helicopters and go to the forward operation bases and sing for 25 people or 35, whatever the number oh, wow. was. And I remember actually the two of us doing Thin Red Line when, uh, and when General Tinchuk had, I mean, Sam's on a little keyboard and my microphone's plugged yeah, into the keyboard. Yeah, battery operated. Right. And it was like 75, 80 degrees at seven o'clock in the morning. And the general was about to pin medals on the chests of these young men and women. And uh, he overhears Thin Red Line. And so then they ask if we would actually play it as he was performing this this uh, ceremony. And so we're sitting over in the corner <laughs> and he's playing the piano and I'm singing through the piano. And uh, we're watching these young uh, men and women get these medals pinned on their chests. It was quite... Uh, quite yeah. Quite- for listeners who, who don't mightn't imagine what a forward operating base in Afghanistan looks like, it's about as remote as you can possibly imagine. And it looks like something most of them, and for Canada at least, in Kandahar province, were looked in, they were often in places that looked a bit like the surface of the moon, right? Like it was very, very remote and very dusty and just completely different from Canada, right? Completely different from home. But what, it, and you also obviously spoke to them as well. So every Remembrance Day, you must think back to those times amongst many others as well. Oh, yeah, uh, for sure. And that's the one thing that, um, you know, and when we uh, go back and forth across the country, we get a, an opportunity. A lot of the, the serving members who have come home um, live in various corners of this country. And to this day, will often come up after a show and and say, listen, I was in Kandahar and I saw you there. And it was it meant a lot that you guys made the effort to be, you know, to be there and to see somebody from home that wasn't military. Uh, certainly brighten their spirits and uh, so so that's that's you know I think the take home for us is is is, is great uh, like it, it changed our lives and and Remembrance Day has a very deep meaning deeper than it it's always been a respectful uh, um, uh, you know date and and memory but for us it it certainly got a, a different meaning now after doing these trips and spending the time. Yeah, the power of music, right? The power of music astounds, doesn't it? Sometimes, totally. Yeah, I w- I really enjoyed um, your third, the album Thirty One, as you reinterpreted some of your some of your biggest hits. Uh, what what could, what should fans expect uh, on this on this upcoming tour? Are you going to do a bit of both? Uh, are you going to uh, sort of mix it up a little bit, or do you try to stick to the originals? Or what's your plan? Well, I mean, it's the holiday season, and uh, you you know we we try and at least acknowledge that. Um, this guy was bugging me for years. We got to do a Christmas album. We're going to do right. <laughs> you did do a Christmas album, yes, indeed. Yeah, and, uh, 
Finally. And so he got his way. But what I agreed to, and he and and he uh, equally uh, so agreed that we didn't want to do Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer, and you know, and stuff that's been done a million times. We're certainly not overly uh, religious by any means. We agreed that if we could do some originals and just make it about life and human connection. I, I mean, look at what's going on in the planet as we as we have this conversation. Uh, we wanted an album that talked about inclusiveness and and uh, the, and human connection. That was it. And Sam agreed and. I think we managed to do that. We we wrote four or five really, um, I think, some of the best stuff we've done, right? Yeah, we tried some covers, and, and like we went through a, a massive list of songs, and the cheese factor goes up really high on Christmas music. And it, does. And it just didn't feel right. And then we we took a, a look through our our spare parts folder, basically, of songs that had, were, were somewhat finished but needed a chorus or needed a verse, and we, we took a look at it in a new way, thinking of the holidays, thinking of family, thinking of friends. And with that approach, it just seemed to click. And all of a sudden, we stumbled on a record which is intent, almost entirely original, with one exception. The one song from, from our investigation that stayed was a Gordon Lightfoot song, which really isn't a Christmas song. Uh, which became the title track song for a winter's night. Mm. Uh, we just love the, sh- the song and we love Gordon. So, and we sent him a copy after we finished it and he, he loved Alan's vocal on it and he loved our version of it. Natalie McMaster uh, played fiddle on it, which again is a lovely East coast Canadian connection. So we kept that song and the rest of the album is uh, so this tour coming up will be uh, obviously we'd like to mix some of that material in with our our um, our well-known hits and and it'll still be very much a glass tiger concert with a touch of the holidays uh, and a tribute and a tribute this year too to gordon right who we lost this year and in some ways it's fitting that you go out and play this song uh in memory of him as well i'd say yes. yeah we got uh we had a lovely time sam and i unfortunately it was covid mm-hmm. uh so we we went over to gordon's place we uh, hung out in the driveway, you know, right. eight feet apart or whatever. And then, uh, as Sam mentioned, uh, Gordon loved our, our version, but it was impossible for him to sing with us. So I whipped up this little ode, this little poem, and I showed, we showed it to him and he said, I love it. So he went into the house and read it and gave it back to us. And so... He introduces the song uh, on the album, which uh, now that we've lost them, we feel even closer to him with that. It's great. Yeah. I, tell me, I mean, you've worked with so many incredible artists over the years. I, I mean, one of the things, I, my, I grew up on the Chieftains, oddly enough, at home. My dad, we had a very eclectic taste. That was that was a great record. I mean, there, just looking through your catalog, there's so much in there. Uh, do any of them stand out to you as sort of those seminal moments? Do you look back? Is there anyone you'd still like to play with? Well, I'll tell you, every one of the guests that were on a record, right from the, the first album, of course, Brian Adams was a guest. Indeed. I don't, I don't think we set out to say every time we make a record, we need a guest. Uh, it just happened organically. And honestly, I mean, even the connection with Rod Stewart singing on My Town, Alan tells a story. I mean, that 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 was a connection 
they were talking about soccer and he found out about the song and said, Hey, how come you haven't asked me to sing on this track? You know, <laughs> chieftains, the chieftains was something I, I have an, I had an Irish mother. Of course, my background is, has an Irish connection. I am a huge chieftains fan. And when we wrote uh, my song, I did it on a little keyboard. And I said to Jim Balance, the producer, so you know what I hear in my head? I really hear somebody like a real Irish band doing that. And he said, well, who do you have in mind? And I said, well, I'd like to go for the Chieftains. <laughs> and of course, we always shoot high, right? Really high. And uh, I think he thought that we would never get it done. And through some connections, I found Patty Maloney. He knew about the band. Um, they were also a very forward-thinking band for an Irish traditional band. They had just recorded with Midger, Mick Jagger. Um, they did, I think, even with uh, they did uh, an album of country songs. So Patty was very much interested in mixing Irish Celtic music with whatever genre that he could figure out. I think he loved the challenge, and um, and we got that opportunity, but we didn't know that going in that that was going to happen, and. Uh, and that's the way all of our guests have been. I would like to. <laughs> I'd like to try an experiment because I didn't know you were going to say this. So you 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 said, "Is there anyone you wish you'd worked with, or would still like to work Indeed, with?" Indeed, yes. I yeah. said to him, <laughs> male or female, I'll count to three, and we'll both say a name at the same time, and we'll see if it's the same one. And, and this isn't rehearsed. You know that uh, deal. Okay, one, two, three. Analytics. Wow, I love analytics. Yes, I love I love analytics. How cool is analytics? I mean, that was that would be. I, I, we've, I mean, not, we've not met her. We've been very close. I think Alan might have. Uh, did you meet her? Or you got something signed? Like we came very close to meeting yeah, her. Yeah, one opportunity. Montreal, uh, yeah, festival. and uh, yeah. Dave was, um, was there. Eurythmics were there. Anyway, it's just it's on our you know our wish list and. Uh, of course, just we're just a huge, massive fan. So maybe again, we never knew all the other guests were going to show up. So we, we never say never. I think my voice and Annie's voice would work well together. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think I think Annie, that, I think Annie, that... If you're to the show. <laughs> yeah, if you're listening, if you're listening, I think that was the festival I saw you at in Montreal in 1986. I think oh, that was the. Was this, this later? Montreal in Switzerland. Yeah. Oh, right, in Montreal, right? Not Montreal. Got, got you. Those are far apart. Uh, I mean, it's it's it sounds like one of the best things you can do is still enjoy playing music, uh, no matter when. And here you are. It's you know, in thirty seven years as a band, from the band, the days as Tokyo playing bars in and around Toronto to to this, you must look back and think, wow, wow, we got to do we we still get to do this. How cool! Yeah, I mean. Uh... The fact that, you know, we see everything that goes on again around us. Uh, we see some of the people we've lost through the years. Um, we're really, we're really fortunate. Like you say 37 years, but you're counting from don't forget me when I'm gone on. Right. We, go, we go even further back than that. So yeah, another four or five. Yeah. Yeah. Least. Back to the early eighties. Right. So yeah. uh, uh, we, we just, uh, we're happy to be together, that we're still sharing this time together, that we're still able to perform. We don't we don't take it uh, lightly that people are still willing to spend their hard-earned mon hard money to, on tickets to come see us or buy an album or buy a T-shirt, whatever it is connected to the band. And uh, we've watched friendships develop uh, among fans uh, who didn't know each other until Glass Tiger and then they became lifetime friends. 
So these are all very important uh, aspects to just being human and, and sharing this experience together. So uh, we, we, uh, we truly enjoy it still. Well, Sam and Alan, I really appreciate your time. Look forward to seeing you out here uh, soon. Thanks so much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Rose. Thanks, man. Thank you. This was a controversial story out west over the weekend. You may have seen it in other parts of the country. It got a lot of coverage. A Vancouver police today is saying high-risk sex offender Randall Hopley deliberately removed his electronic monitoring bracelet on Saturday, shortly before leaving his Vancouver halfway house. Now, there's several specialized teams searching for Hopley uh, tonight. A Canada-wide warrant has been issued for the 58-year-old. Police Sergeant Steve Addison says, again, he walked away after telling several people he was going to a nearby store. We believe that somewhere along the way, he removed the electronic monitoring bracelet that he was required to wear, and he hasn't been uh, located since. Um, We know that he had a court appearance on another matter that was scheduled for today, and he had expressed some fear about that court appearance, possibly believing that he was headed back to jail. Now, who is this guy? He has a history of convictions for assault, property, and sexual crimes, including three involving children. He was declared a long-term offender and sentenced to six years in prison for the 2011 kidnapping of a three-year-old boy in southeastern BC. Now, BC's premier says he's deeply disturbed that a high-risk sex offender uh, would be allowed to walk away or did walk away uh, from his halfway house. Uh, David Eby says it's inconceivable that he was able to escape supervision. Uh, that that he was uh, insufficiently supervised and able to walk away from a halfway house. Uh, I don't understand uh, why uh, there weren't sufficient safeguards put in place by the parole board on this individual to prevent this from happening. So it's hard to underline uh, the uh, importance of ensuring the safety of our kids. And uh, and uh, and we really um, look to the Senate to approve the bail reform bill as quickly as possible. It is unacceptable that they are sitting on this bill. A few different things going on in those clips from BC's Premier David Eby. Now, Hopley served his full term for the 2011 abduction and was released in October 2018, but the National Parole Board recommended charges against him after finding him not complying with supervision orders related to his release. What Eby was talking about at the end there was current bail reform legislation uh, that is sitting in the Senate right now. It was fast-tracked by the House earlier this year and is now sitting with the Senate uh, to go into effect, but has been held up for a little bit. Mary Campbell has been with us before. She joins us again. She's a lawyer and former Director General of the Corrections and Criminal Justice uh, Directorate in the Public Safety Department. Mary, thank you. Uh, you my pleasure. This is this is one of those ones that, that raises, you know, just people really scratch their heads about how this could possibly happen. But there are some particularities about this case that I think probably should probably explain. One was that he had completed his sentence, right? So he was no longer... But what happened after that is, as far as... So listeners can understand what exact... The situation that he found himself in. Uh, yeah, sure. It is a little bit complicated. Um, and with all due respect to your premier, I, I do wish politicians would wait till all the facts are out before they start pronouncing where the blame lies. Um, and the simple fact on the bail issue is uh, the bill that's before Parliament right now wouldn't make any difference in this case. It's, it's got nothing to right. do with this case. Um, but on the sentence itself, let's be clear, he had quite a history of offences. And the court back in 2013 considered uh, designating him a dangerous offender 
That's what the Crown wanted, which would have meant indefinite incarceration the rest of his life. The court said, no, we're not satisfied that test is met, but, you know, there's this thing called long-term supervision order, and um, I will admit to you I'm one of the creators of that back in the mid-1990s, and that is a designation that says, "Mm, boy, we're worried about you, you're a sex offender, you're not quite a dangerous offender, we think you can be managed with some extended supervision, because one thing we know about sex offenders is they reoffended at a low rate, but over a longer period of time. So he got a definite, he got the sentence, and as you said, did every day of it in custody. Then the 10-year order clicked in, and the judge, it was the judge that imposed 10 years. Uh, she could have imposed, or he could have imposed up to 10 years. Um, now, just pause for a moment and think about doing 10 years under supervision. I don't think I could do 10 months, you know, Uh, and you're dealing with people who aren't the most cooperative to begin with. So Mr. Hopley has been under this order, you know, do this, go here, don't do that, go up, go down, go west, go east. Um, It's a lot to to deal with. And he has a history of breaching uh, that kind of order. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, when I look back and I read, or reread the court's judgment tonight, the one from 2013, and I know hindsight is 50-50, but boy, um, I'm not sure that the courts got it right in imposing, you know, 10 years of supervision. No, I mean, in this case, uh, I, I guess there's a few different things that have. First of all, obviously, people are wondering how it is that he was not declared a long-term offender, given the circumstances of that previous crime, the abduction specifically, but the fact that there have been crimes before that. I understand, of course, that there, you know, long-term supervision is in itself, as you've mentioned, a fairly severe uh, thing to be put under. I suppose what people are asking now is that what what does it mean then, long-term supervision, if you can simply cut off your ankle bracelet and walk away, right? Uh, that Where's no. the supervision in the long-term? term supervision, right? Yeah, there's a couple of issues there, and I'm glad you raised electronic monitoring. Um, boy, I, I, I long for the day when people understand the facts about electronic monitoring bracelets. I wouldn't pay 50 cents for that as a tool in criminal justice. You know, the vendors say they're foolproof. They're not foolproof. They're obviously not foolproof. And nobody's sitting in front of a computer screen watching to see where, you know, like the blue dot on your GPS Nobody's sitting there watching that. Uh, Like, end the love affair with electronic monitoring. It's a waste of time. You know, uh, Corrections would have been doing other things. Uh, He was living in a halfway house. There are a lot of rules attached to that. And uh, there's all the standard conditions he would have been subject to, plus, I'm sure, some special conditions. You know, at the end of the day, uh, Mr. Hopley has a lot of challenges, and he was born into a lot of challenges. Um, he's someone who has demonstrated uh, he just won't follow the rules. He doesn't understand why people think his behavior is wrong. Uh, I don't think there's any amount of therapy that would get him to a place where he would understand. And I think, sadly, there are a few people, and there are very few, um, that really can't live in the community under any kind of reasonable conditions. You know, you'd almost have to have someone chained to Mr. Hopley 24-7 uh, to, you know, supervise him or to keep him on the straight and narrow. Um, it's a sad fact, you know, and I think it raises issues people could think about when they see a child in need in their community. 
that's the time you want to intervene uh, because 20, 30, right. 40 years later, it's uh, pretty difficult. Um, yeah, the, because in his case, he was found, of course, to have been, I mean, these were, there were for some very strict rules under the, super, the supervision order that he was under yeah. for the decade after yeah. his release. Uh, and yeah. and he he continued to violate them, right? He was, he was seen in libraries near children. He just wouldn't obey by the rules. Yeah. So I gather, I suppose what people are also asking, if he wasn't obeying by the rules, when do you, when do you pull the plug on this and put him back in jail? Because I, I gather that's what was about to happen. And that presumably yeah. has what is what's led to this disappearance. Yeah, and you know, correctional authorities and the parole board struggle with that question. You know, they look at the science, they look at the research, but they struggle with that. At what point do you say we're going to impose the most draconian measure that we have, which is really to lock the person up forever? The parole board had the authority in this case with a breach of the supervision uh, to suspend him and send him back to prison, but only for 90 days. Uh, and that's why they recommended criminal charges and criminal charges were laid. And so he potentially faces, uh, I think at most up to 10 years, a 10 year sentence in prison. Um, and yeah, I'm sure Mr. Hopley has been freaked out about this. I, I hope if he's listening that he'll go back to the house and turn himself in. Um, that nothing tragic comes of this. It's a very, very difficult case. Uh, sex offenders, as they say, reoffend at a low rate, but he is, according to the research, in the highest risk group, men who yes. offend against a child, uh, strangers. Um, you know, there, it's... Mary, when, when he was, I, I, no, I'm at a loss because yeah. I normally wouldn't say send someone back to prison, but... But in this case, it, yeah. And also, I, I guess it also begs the question if, if if there was an awareness that he was due back in court and that this could be a time where maybe, th you know, the walls were closing in on him again. Would there not have been increased supervision of him knowing that this was going to be a potentially a time of where he could do something like this? Sure. I mean, yes and no. Uh, you know, CSC works with the resources they have. Uh, I don't recall that they ever got any additional resources to work with the long-term supervision cases. Uh, you know, so they, they do what they can. Um, and <laughs> short of really having someone by his side constantly, which is, you know, a big draw on resources, uh, I guess maybe they had some faith in electronic monitoring. They do have that program. As I say, I, I would like to see that love affair broken up. Um, EM is, uh, well, uh, it just doesn't do what people think it does. I, yeah, it kind of works I, after, you would think, after the fact, right? Yeah. Yes, yeah, no, and, and that's the tragedy of it is that there are people, you know, uh, people would have seen years ago that there was trouble with this person. Um, and, you know, I, the time to intervene was long ago. That's not going to do much good right now. Uh, hopefully people uh, that are looking for them, and, and I'm sure they are uh, working at it constantly, you know, I hope it comes to a, a quick resolution. But then I fear that in this case, having tried all the alternatives, um, there probably is no choice, but... Uh, a period back back behind bars. People need to know this right. is a you know it's not it's not a, a, an indication of uh, problems in the system. 
this is a you know a very uh, a special case in a lot of ways because it is so problematic. It doesn't you know uh, does it need bail reform? No, that's got nothing to do with it. Although I would note that he had to wait for a year for a trial. Perhaps your premier would like to look into that uh, in terms of why bail is granted. Um, you know, are you going to hold someone in prison for a year waiting for the trial? If you yeah, could get trials happening uh... more quickly. You know? That was quite the turn from the premier there, bl- blaming the bail thing, when, of course, we know this had nothing to do with that. Uh, Mary, I was just going to read you a, a quick note. Of one week, we got a text in uh, from a listener saying, I think this case isn't complicated at all. They gave too much freedom to a guy who obviously wasn't ready and didn't deserve our trust, and he ran off. And when it comes to sexual assault, I don't uh, I don't buy the low rate of reoffense. Uh, sexual assault permanently changes people's lives. I, I guess there's a lot of anger out there because they figure if, if this person can slip through the cracks, well, what about everybody else? Because Clearly, as you pointed out, there were an awful lot of red flags here. So it just kind of boggles the mind for the, those who don't know the system that well to imagine that someone like him would be given any any real freedom at all. And you were explaining why that was earlier. But wow, this case, this case, uh, this he, case is going to upset a lot of people. Yeah, uh, understandably. Uh, yeah. I mean, I live many miles away from where it all happened, but I'm very familiar with it. Um, you know, part of what people have to understand was this was a court order. It wasn't the parole board that put Mr. Hoppy out in the community for 10 years. It was the judge who several years ago decided that 10 years of supervision after the custody sentence would be appropriate. Um, you know, there are things, there are some mechanisms that can work. And I, I want to just mention circles of support and accountability. I don't know if they were involved with him at all. This is a volunteer uh, organization, and they literally wrap a circle around a sex offender in the community uh, and basically, you know, uh, befriend and supervise the bejeebers out of the person. Uh, it's a it's a model that has been uh, demonstrated to be very effective. So uh, that might be something your premier might want to think about. You know, uh, courts are reluctant to... Uh, send someone to prison if there's any chance that they can live safely in the community. And bear in mind, Mr. Hopley did go through a 20-year period with no charges for anything. 20 years, crime-free. Now, I can hear the people saying, ah, yeah, you know, it's just he didn't get uh, caught. He didn't get arrested. And that may be true. But, you know, we have to go on the face of it, which is he did 20 years without any kind of problem. Um You know, it is a sad situation at this point because I think we've kind of passed the point of um, any meaningful chance of uh, management in in the community. So. In this case, uh, I hope, Mary, who who yeah. you? You're going to you're going to see a lot of headlines and a lot of people talking about this. There's a lot of yeah. anger out there in the community, and, and yeah. you get it, right? Who yeah. don't? Yeah. I mean, and then the politics comes in. So, so who don't you point the finger at here? Do you think? I mean, this was clearly a judge's decision, and that's pretty much the last line of defense when it comes to these things, right? Yeah, and you know, there's been a, a lot of work in recent years to help judges understand what happens after they pass sentence. So. There's a program that operates for judges. They spend a week with the corrections people uh, actually out in BC and in Ontario so that they have a better idea of what the strengths and the the, uh, weaknesses of the system are. And that's a great program. 
Um, but, you know, not everything can be fixed by just changing the law. I think if people understood the research a little bit better and paid attention to it, uh, our current prime minister promised in 2015 that he would pursue evidence-based policies. That's a very good statement to make. Um, we don't always see that in the legislation that comes out. And it's no. a question of resources as well. You know, there is a lot of competition for, for dollars, you know. Uh, and Mary, and I, I go back. I go back to the fact that oh, Mr. Hoffman I'll, I'll just have to, I, I apologize to stop you there. <laughs> Thank you so much. I just ran out of time. <laughs> As always, Mary, I really appreciate your insight on this. Wonderful. Thank you, Ben. When you're always a half hour ahead, you never feel the need to catch up. Newfoundland and Labrador. It's rare in the world. I mean, Afghanistan's half an hour ahead, right? It has a half hour time zone. It's rare that a time zone can be a point of pride. But Newfoundland and Labrador are certainly unique in the Canadian context. And as I mentioned, pretty rare worldwide as well. Just a handful of places have a half hour time zone. Um, And then there is Newfoundland and Labrador. It adds a sixth to the Canadian context after Pacific Mountain, Central, Eastern, and Atlantic. And of course, Newfoundland time. Anybody who's ever watched TV in this country will know that little caveat at the end. And half an hour later at 8.30 in Newfoundland, it used to always say, and you think, why is that uh, when you were, you know, when you were young or any time for that matter? I don't know if they still say it as much anymore. I wonder. Uh, But that half hour for Newfoundland was always there. So I think if you grew up in Canada, you're fully aware that Newfoundland has a half hour time zone. Um, As my next guest puts it, It's a familiar refrain to Canadians, a concession to that peculiar 30-minute time zone at the edge of the continent. Now, as she points out, the province should, by all rights, be on Atlantic time, since most of it falls between the 55th and 65th meridians west, where the Atlantic time zone is. But there are a whole bunch of reasons why it didn't, and to this day, we have a half-hour time zone. If you go to Newfoundland, it's half an hour uh, later than it is in Halifax, right? That's the way that's the way it works. I have family in Newfoundland, and I'm, of course, out west, so that's a lot of time zones to go across, but you get that extra half hour. In fact, from uh, you're closer to the UK, right, in time zones. You're closer, they're closer to the UK than they are to uh, both physically and time zone-wise, which makes perfect sense, of course, uh, to me out here on the West Coast. Ainsley Hawthorne is a cultural historian and author and editor of Land of Many Shores, Perspectives from a Diverse Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, she lives in St. John's. She's looked into this and she has the answers about why this still is. Why do we have this half-hour time zone in this country, and why will they are they unlikely to ever let go of it? Ainsley, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on. This is one of these things that every Canadian knows. Every Canadian probably knows that Newfoundland has a half-hour on its time zone, and very few have probably asked, well, why is that? And lo and behold, you went and figured it out. I guess it all kind of begins, I mean, to begin at the beginning, it all sort of begins with the very well-known Sanford Fleming, and trains. That's right. I think to understand how Newfoundland time came to exist, you have to have some idea of how time zones came about to begin with, because it's not as organized and structured uh, an origin story as you might expect. We think of time zones as being pretty, you know, rigid. They have these clear geographical delineations. They're all an hour apart. Um, But they actually came about in sort of a haphazard way. It wasn't a government initiative. 
it actually came from the railways. The reason for that is because the railways needed standardized timetables all across the different stations where they would be stopping um, so that you would be able to know when the train was going to arrive. Historically, time was kept by the position of the sun. Mm -hmm. When the sun was directly overhead, it was high noon. And before you had high-speed travel, before you had telecommunications, that was good enough. You didn't need to be operating on exactly the same time as a community that would be a day or two's horseback ride away. But as soon as you have trains moving quickly from place to place, it gets very confusing to calculate these minuscule time differences, sometimes two minutes here or three minutes there in how individual communities were keeping time. So the way that Sanford Fleming comes into the picture, he had an experience in Ireland where he was uh, waiting at a station for a train and he had misunderstood their train schedule. So the train that he thought was departing at 5 p.m. had actually left 12 hours earlier at 5 a.m. And he spent a very uncomfortable night sleeping in the train station. So that was kind of the moment where he thought, we need to get a handle on how we're keeping track of time. We need to do it consistently in different parts of the world. He came up with the idea of dividing the globe into 24 time zones, each 15 uh, degrees of longitude and one hour apart, all of them based on Greenwich mean time as right. measured at the Greenwich Observatory in London. I've been there, actually, the, the, the birthplace of time. And we always think of it as. And so so he basically sets this up as and as you put it out, it was sort of just for, because of the need of it. So it's actually called is it's it's called standard railway time. Right. It's not even it, it's right in the name at the beginning. Yes. Yeah, so when it first came out, people didn't even refer to it as, as like time zones the way we do today. It was an initiative of the railways. They divided North America into five different time zones. Pacific, Mountain, Central, Eastern, and Intercolonial, which later became Atlantic time. And the railways used those for their timetables. But many communities saw how convenient this was to have a shared sense of time that they could use to communicate with places around them. So lots of municipalities passed their own ordinances saying that they were going to adopt standard railway time. Of course, Newfoundland being an island, and at that right. time it was under its own government, it wasn't even part of Canada yet, uh, it was completely disconnected from this conversation that was happening in the rest of the continent. Not so many even trains. The railways, Not many trains either, no. right? Yeah. No, I mean, there was a tiny little railway on the eastern part of the island, but it didn't connect with the railways on the rest of the continent. So they had no reason to be adopting this same time system everyone else had agreed on. So what happens in Newfoundland is that gradually, as it becomes more necessary for their own local railway and their own local telecommunications, Newfoundlanders start using St. John's time. And the position of St. John's is about three and a half hours behind Greenwich Mean Time. Now, I say three and a half hours, but if you want to get really eccentric, at the end of the 19th century, St. John's time was three hours, 30 minutes, and 49 and a half seconds behind wow. GMT. So we think three and a half hours is bad, but it could be worse. Imagine saying that on TV every um, night. Yeah. And three hours, three, three, three hours yes. and 30 minutes and 49 seconds later in Newfoundland. Yeah. Yeah. Why was that? Yes. So there was, well, there was no standardization. So they were just going by solar time. 
Right. They were setting their, their watches. They were shooting the noonday gun based on when the sun was directly overhead. So based on their sort of local position, right? And so what you had happen locally was that communities around St. John's, they started using St. John's local time, even if they were slightly further away. That becomes the time that's used by government, the time that's used for telecommunications, the time that's used for the railway timetables. And as the railway gradually extends across the province, St. John's time comes to be used all the way to the west coast of the island. The west coast of the island is really smack dab in the middle of the Atlantic time zone. It's pretty much exactly on what we would call Atlantic time. So St. John's time isn't really accurately reflecting the time that they have out there. And there's a wonderful 1917 article that was written um, in a, a local newspaper about inhabitants in Cape Ray, which is on the western portion of the island, um, where the, the writer is pointing out that people in this community are using all sorts of different measures of time. There right. is no like local standard or local agreement. It's completely disorganized. So you have people in town who are setting their clocks to St. John's time. The postmaster is going by local solar time. So that's 26 minutes behind St. John's. The lighthouse keeper is going by daylight saving time, which was a new idea in 1917. The government had just initiated it. So he was being, you know, very modern, very forward thinking. Very progressive. So he's yeah. Yeah. Very progressive. He's one hour ahead of everybody else in town. And then the wireless officials, so the people running the local wireless station, they were on Eastern time because they wanted to be on the same time as their head office in Montreal. So their clocks are an hour and a half behind everybody else. Wow. So if you were to stop in Cape Ray back in the day and ask someone what time it was, uh, you might get any number of answers. You could get four or five different potential answers. And actually, the author of this article said that uh, the compilation of a timetable would be very helpful for visitors (laughs) so that they can, you know, distinguish between all these different options. But it shows you that even as late as 1917, um, Local communities weren't necessarily going with a time standard that was being used all across the province. And this wouldn't only have been happening in Newfoundland. It would have happened in other places, too. So, for instance, you know, St. John, New Brunswick, we know that they were at the end of the 19th century. They were using their local time, which was 24 minutes behind Atlantic time. Because I guess it, it, communities were used to time making sense for them, right? They were used to time being noon was when the sun was overhead. That made sense for your community. So abiding by some by the time where the you know sun was overhead, you know, it's four hundred kilometers away, didn't make any sense at the time. I mean, we we take it completely for granted now. But even one hundred and twenty five years ago, people were like, "What are you talking about? It's ridiculous." Yes, and why? Yeah. And at that point, you know, for most people, why would you need it? Unless you need to know exactly when the train is arriving in town. Most people didn't really need this initially. And so what you actually get is at the end of the 19th century, most countries around the world are not on the system of standardized time. Communities are using their local time. They're using local solar time. And it's only over the next 100 years, 125 years, that more and more places see the benefits of the standardized time zones that we have today. And that has to do with, in part, how globalized we've become. So we have things like this radio program that's airing across the country, and it's helpful to know when it's going to be on the radio. 
Ainsley Hawthorne is with us, cultural historian and author. She lives in St. John. She's editor of Land of Many Stories, Perspectives from a Diverse Newfoundland and Labrador. We're talking about that one aspect of Newfoundland life that just about every Canadian is familiar with, the extra half hour. Where did it come from? We've been talking about it. So by 1935, I gather there is, in fact, a commission that sits down and says, and this is before Newfoundland enters Confederation, but they sit down and say, okay, we're going we're gonna to figure this out. There's going to be one time for the entire Dominion. Yes, that's right. So it's not until 1935 that the government actually decides we should put something in the books about what time we want everyone in the Dominion of Newfoundland to follow. And it's partly about um, following the uh, a sort of standard time that everyone agrees on and partly about putting daylight savings time in writing mm-hmm. because it was something that officially Newfoundland had been doing since 1917. Newfoundland was actually the first country in the Americas to do daylight savings time. Um, and they wanted to put that down as well, that twice a year we're going to shift to daylight savings time, get all of that on the books. <clears throat> What's interesting about the history of time zones is this fact that you would imagine that it would have been top down from the beginning. The governments would have decided, hey, this standardization across our whole jurisdiction is a really good idea. Let's put that into our legislation. When it's really the reverse, it was used at kind of the grassroots level. It was used by companies for decades before governments started to think, oh, you know what? Let's actually make an act about this and make it this is official. And then even in, 19, when 19, in 1949, when Canada, when Newfoundland joins Confederation, I guess there is no pressure for it to join Atl- Atlantic time, which would make sense, right? But it doesn't. It, it keeps its half hour. It keeps that that oh so unique part of its uh, part of its culture, that extra half hour, because it doesn't exist in many places. No. And, you know, there have been a couple of attempts to move Newfoundland and Labrador onto Atlantic time. Most of Labrador follows Atlantic time traditionally anyway, even though they're not, you know, it's not really legislated that they should do that, but people do it because they're so much closer um, to Atlantic time than to Newfoundland time geographically. Um, But in 1951, 1963, there were attempts to move the island to Atlantic time, and there was so much public outcry (laughs) that the, the government sort of let those ideas go because people like you know, the sort of uniqueness, I think, of having our own little half hour time zone. But who's to say what happens in the future? Because what we have seen over time is that, you know, in the early 20th century, Uruguay and Suriname were both on the same half hour time zone as Newfoundland. Yes, they're gone now. I, I didn't realize Suriname was so recent either. Yes, yeah. So Uruguay dropped a half hour back in 1942, and Suriname jumped a half hour ahead in 1984. So both of them are now on standard one hour deviations from uh, Greenwich Mean Time. And that's what you kind of see around the world. Like if you go back 100 years, there are many, many countries who are not following a standard one hour offset from Greenwich Mean Time. But today, there are only about 11, 12 different time zones in the world that are half hour, 15 minute increments. So most countries have kind of come on board with this idea, although um, some countries do it in their own little idiosyncratic way. So for instance, uh, Iceland is they, the time they use is an hour ahead of where it should be based on their geographical position so that their local time is closer to the time in Europe because they do so much business and communication and, 
right? Yeah. They're sort of yeah. part of Europe politically. And what so lived, there are political reasons. When I lived in China as well, of course, because of the way China works, everything was mandated to be on Beijing time. But if you live in the west of the country, way like hundreds and you know, thousands of kilometers from Beijing, it makes absolutely no sense to be on Beijing time. So they work on two time zones, their own and Beijing's, right? Like that's just the way it works. Uh, what an interesting thing. So you think Newfoundland is going to, I get I get the sense Newfoundland's never letting go of the half hour. I don't know. It seems like it's so baked in to, to Newfoundland's sense, Newfoundland and Labrador's sense of, of identity that you can't really get rid of it now it's kind of it's it's one of those things that makes newfoundland and labrador distinct yes and in fact our premier andrew fury was asked about it a couple of years ago um, as part of the discussions that everyone everywhere is having about whether we let daylight savings time go right and so he was also asked well what do you think about moving newfoundland to atlantic time and he said i don't think it's going to happen we like to be different which <laughs> i think is the prevailing opinion here well, Ainsley, I, it's one of, again, it was one of those things I, I think most, most of us know and very few of us actually know the origin. So I really appreciate you uh, shedding some light, taking the time to shed some light on this one. Thank you. It was great chatting about it with you. Of course, it is already uh, November the 7th in the Middle East in Israel. So it's been a month now uh, since that horrific attack by Hamas in southern Israel. 1,400 people were killed. Uh, seven Canadians, at least two Canadians are still amongst the more than 200 hostages being held by Hamas. Uh, we spoke to the son of one of them uh, last week or a few weeks ago. Uh, and it's just everything has been so upended, uh, both in the Middle East and, and the reaction to it right around the world, of course, as you've seen. Uh, so there are vigils uh, taking place in Israel uh, on the 7th, tomorrow, tonight, uh, to mark to mark this, to mark the period of mourning uh, that continues. Um and there's been, I mean, what's been happening is Anthony Blinken has been in uh, in the region over the past few days, the U.S. Secretary of State, uh, discussing what they're hoping would be a tactical pause with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, again, he met, wrapped up his Middle East tour in Turkey uh, with only limited success, though, as he's trying to ease tensions here. And what the call has been for, and this is coming from Canada as well, is for what would be a humanitarian pause. It's not a ceasefire. Uh, it would be simply to allow for aid to get in to Gaza, people to get out, um, foreign nationals such as Canadians, uh, as well as others. Uh, here's Anthony Blinken. Here's what he had to say today. We've uh, engaged the Israelis on steps that they can take to minimize civilian casualties. We're working, as I said, very aggressively on getting more humanitarian assistance into Gaza. And we have very concrete ways of doing that. And I think you'll see in the days ahead uh, that that assistance can expand in, in, in significant ways. Uh, Antony Blinken there. It comes, of course, as the Israeli army has cut off northern Gaza from the rest of the territory. Uh, it continues to hit it with airstrikes ahead of ground forces pushing in to Gaza City itself. So far, uh, the Israeli government has rejected calls for this humanitarian pause um, amid r rising civilian deaths. The United Nations have been talking about this. They're saying supplies of fuel, clean water, food and medicine are running low in Gaza. The heads of several major UN bodies today called for a humanitarian ceasefire uh, for the time being. The UN Secretary Secretary General today at a briefing with reporters also called for a ceasefire. Uh, now the link, the language around this has been has been difficult because, of course, who do you who do you negotiate a ceasefire with? Right, Hamas are not going to obey by a ceasefire. So what do you do? This is really, uh, I think, the idea here is really a humanitarian pause, simply to allow the civilian population in Gaza some relief and ability to get them some kind of protection and safety. Uh, there are, of course, still Canadians in the Gaza Strip now. They've not been able to get out. There's been repeated attempts or promises 
promises that that Rafah crossing uh, between Egypt and Gaza will, will be open. It has not. Um, one of them is in London, Ontario. Sama El Sabah says she's worried about how her 73 year old father, who is a Canadian citizen, would get from Gaza City where he is now. They've been asked to move south, of course, uh, to that Rafah crossing, which is in the south. He hasn't moved yet. Here she is. Um, he's just uh, very anxious. He's just waiting. He's waiting to get out. Things are, are, are getting worse and worse every day. Right. Well, in the immediate aftermath of that Hamas attack on the 7th of October, I spoke with uh, Canada's former ambassador to Israel, John Allen, and we uh, thought we'd ask him back for his perspective on what has been a deadly month in the region, where it's been diplomatically, where it's been diplomatically and militarily, and where it could go from here. So John Allen, former Canadian ambassador to Israel, senior fellow at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto, rejoins me now. Thank you so much. Welcome back. Thanks very much, Ben. It's um, it's good to be here with you. It's it's been a month, uh, or will have been a month tomorrow, and so much has happened in in that period of time. But uh, just from your perspective, I mean, we spoke very early on. I think on the tenth um, of October. What have you seen in the last month, and and what has what has surprised you, and what has disappointed you? Well, it took quite a while uh, for Israel to begin to launch the ground invasion. Uh, There were many reasons uh, suggested for that. Uh, The Americans wanted to beef up uh, their protection in Iraq and and in other places. They wanted uh, to uh, get their strike force in place to deter uh, Hezbollah and Iran after quickly moving, Israel decided that they had better slow down, take their time, get their reserves both up in the north and uh, down to Gaza and and plan their, their strategy. So that, that took quite a while. The number of innocent Palestinian women, children, elderly, that has shocked and, and surprised me. I know that Israel is between a rock and a hard place. It It has a right to self-defense, and it deserves to be able to respond. And in that uh, urban, densely populated area where Hamas is hiding in tunnels and using innocent Palestinians as human shields, uh, it, it makes it extremely difficult for Israel. But at the same time, people are suffering terribly. Uh, the use of a siege, I think, was wrong it was wrong on so many levels. Uh, it hurt Israel's image, of course, but most importantly, it was preventing food and medicine and water from getting in. Um, we've seen a trickle now, perhaps a bit more, of humanitarian goods uh, getting through the border, but uh, that, that should be constant. Uh, there should be hundreds of trucks uh, going in. I guess the fact that uh, Hezbollah uh, while lobbing rockets into northern Israel, into towns like Kiryat Shmona, and having forced the evacuation of many communities there, has really held back. The speech by their leader, Nezrallah, uh, kind of signaled that um, they were not involved in Hamas's activities, and uh, he suggested that they you know, weren't about to get involved. Uh, that could be a feint, who knows, but um, I think that's interesting. I guess finally, uh, the U.S. is very, very active from right from the beginning. They're uh, bringing their, their equipment into the uh, Mediterranean. They're very clear expression of uh, 
of Israel's right to self-defense and uh, their continued opposition to a ceasefire, which other Western uh, leaders have followed on. I mean, just from from your you know, from the perspective of someone who spent time trying to navigate the always thorny situation, whether it was through the Lebanon, or the Hezbollah-Israel war, some of those early fights in Gaza after Israel withdrew from Gaza. I mean, this really feels like, I mean, it felt like it at the time, but a month in, the whole security dy- dynamic of that area has changed. And we're just watching to see what happens. And it feels, I mean, the Americans aren't really able to do much to try to to insist upon Israel that it do things a certain way. And the other Arab nations don't seem to be able to, to do much about Hamas either in terms of getting the hostages released, for instance. It feels like this has kind of taken on a life of its own. And that can be very dangerous in that part of the world. Absolutely. There's no question about it. And uh, the number of, of deaths of innocent people on both sides, of course, is a precedent. Uh, we've never seen these numbers before. What I find amazing is that Hamas keeps throwing rockets into Israel, uh, notwithstanding that uh, the ground forces are beginning to encircle Gaza City. There was an amazing amount of planning on their part they're drawing uh, the young IDF soldiers in, and I think it's going to be quite a, uh, a dangerous and um, destructive ground force going forward. We've seen uh, increasing again today, we've seen calls from many international organizations asking for something, some sort of cessation for the time being, just to allow the humanitarian situation uh, to be dealt with more uh, in Gaza specifically. This, this has to be a fine line. For Israel, because because it has support for many of its allies right now, but it feels like that support could be fragile. I mean, this it could be fragile if you have the UN and others increasingly calling on some sort of stop to this, because the language from the UN Secretary General and so on is getting more and more insistent at this point. Absolutely, and the call for a humanitarian pause, I think, is a just one and one that all the leaders who assert Israel's right to self-defense are making now. And uh, they are themselves caught a bit between a rock and a hard place because there are thousands and thousands of protesters demanding a ceasefire. And the minimum that these leaders want, and uh, in my opinion, Israel should do, is provide a, a pause to allow nationals, foreign nationals to get out a lot of food and medicine to get in, and also to allow hostages to leave if the negotiations have proceeded that far. We don't exactly know where there's where that's at, but um, that would be another element um, that would uh, benefit from uh, a, a humanitarian pause. And I think at some point, uh, Israel is going to have to give in on this. But uh, it's not clear when, and I was frankly surprised uh, that Bibi uh, essentially uh, refused Blinken's request when he came, uh, which made Blinken's other visits in the region quite complicated. Um, but what, what do you make so far of Canada's stance on this? Here we are a month, a month in. Sure. I mean, I, I don't uh, actually agree with um, the sentiment that I read in the papers mm-hmm that because we haven't gotten our foreign nationals out, that we are somehow, you know, behind the eight ball here. There are many, many countries who are trying to get their foreign nationals out. Some internationals uh, working with uh, NGOs and with the UN got out. 
in the first round. Some Americans, not all, got out in the second. We were scheduled to get out on Sunday, but because of the allegations uh, that Hamas was using these exits to get its people out, that was stopped. I think that uh, the foreign minister and the prime minister have been fully engaged in trying to protect its uh, its foreign nationals. You know, in due course, they will they will come out. And I I have no doubt that the Brits and the other EU countries and the Australians and the New Zealanders are feeling the same pressures. They have people there. They want them out. And uh, I think the Canadian government is is making a real effort to do that. But you've got a negotiation between Egypt, between Israel, between Hamas, the Qataris. I wouldn't be surprised if they're trying to get all of the Canadians or almost all of the Canadians out in one bunch. And uh, and that in itself is not easy. Uh, as many as can get to the, the Rafa crossing as possible. Yeah, and, I, and I guess if, if uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is in a position to sort of ignore calls from Joe Biden and, and Antony Blinken, then certainly he's going to be able to feel comfortable enough to ignore Justin Trudeau and, and Melanie Jolie as well. I mean, they're meeting in Tokyo, I guess, to talk about this. Um, it'll be interesting to see what what emerges from there, because they do emerge with a common a common call. It could have an it could have an impact as a collective, even though many of the individual countries are having trouble exerting their will in the area right now. That's right. But the the other aspect of, of the Trudeau government's policy, which is to respect Israel's right to defense and to, as we've said, call for a humanitarian pause, is pretty consistent with uh, the rest of the West. I, I think um, uh, the minister has been quite active. I, I think she's not only been on the phone, but she's been traveling. On this one, they're you know they're doing they're doing their best in a tough situation. Probably watch this up close for for, for several years, uh, right at the front of it. Are, are you worried? I mean, it's hard to tell. I mean, people are people have been. This has been a really difficult one, I think, for many many people to watch unfold. Are you concerned about what what comes ahead? Are you more concerned now than you were thirty days ago? Well, I'm I'm concerned about what comes ahead in in the sense of what happens to Gaza afterwards. You know, you've got the north one quarter or more destroyed. If, let's say, Israel were to succeed to some extent uh, and eliminate the leadership, um, political and military, who would uh, go in afterwards to try and stabilize the situation? I mean, that's extremely important. There will be some counterinsurgency, so it's not going to be safe and easy. Uh, Will uh, Gulf states uh, step up to the plate and provide some uh, forces to go in, supported by perhaps the uh, UN and, and maybe some Western countries. But somebody's going to have to fill the vacuum uh, once this ends. And then uh, there really has to be an effort uh, in the West Bank. The West Bank is on fire right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, settlers are running rampant. And, and this is a serious problem that could blow and you could have a second front for Israel. And they've got to bring that under control. And then once this war is over and Bibi's gone, they've got to stop the settlements, stop settlement expansion immediately, begin to get rid of the illegal outposts, send a message to Palestinians, both in Gaza and in the West Bank, that if the Palestinians can get their act together with the assistance of the the international community, then there can be a horizon for peace. Because um, I really continue to believe that two states is the only way 
that these two people are going to be able to live in peace and security. But that needs a process that needs a building up of uh, the Palestinian Authority, not necessarily Mahmoud Abbas, but somebody that will follow him. And uh, I, I, Israel, it, it will be incumbent on them to um, send some signals that if they have viable valuable interlocutors, not Hamas, who's committed to destroying the state, but others who have said that they're prepared to live side by side. If they can build those people up over time, uh, we can see a beginning to the end of, of this conflict. Don, thank you so much as always. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me and uh, look forward to seeing you again. The days, of course, are getting shorter and colder these days, and you know that. You can, you get the feeling that cold season, as I was saying earlier in the show, when I go out before work, I go for a quick walk, and today it was pitch black. It was raining, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, fall is here, summer's long gone, winter's coming, and here we are. Um, now, my next guest uh, dove into a subject that I think we all could appreciate. She's had a cold every month since her kids started daycare. Um, so she started to look into, sort of take a deep dive into why she's so congested and what it is with her nose. Why is she always blowing her nose as something we'll all, we'll all relate to in this country? Um, and it turned out she found that everything she thought she knew about this subject was completely wrong. So we thought we'd invite Atlantic staff writer Sarah Jung on the show to explain exactly why that was. Sarah, thank you for your time tonight. Oh, thank you for having me. This one's gotten quite the response, hasn't it? I mean, it's such a cool way of looking. I mean, everyone suffers from this at some point. So I guess everyone can relate to it. But you had personal experience with with the nose and therefore went to look into it. Yeah, well, that's right. I have a kid in daycare, so I've been getting a cold about every two or three weeks. So I think I've spent the past, uh, I would say, most of the past six months congested in one way or another. So this had a lot of personal interest for me. So you went out to find out more about about why we get stuffed up. Is that it? Yeah, that's right. Well, so you know, a little bit before this, I was writing about these decongestants. Uh, this is a drug, a very common drug that in the United States was recently pulled because it's actually ineffective. Um, the drug is called uh, phenylephrine. It's found in, in the U.S. It's found in Sudafed PE, Dayquil, a lot of really common cold medications. It turns out to not work at all. And in the course of a conversation about you know how it's theoretically supposed to work, a nose researcher was telling me, oh, the way this drug is supposed to work is that you have all these blood vessels in your nose, and this drug is supposed to reduce the swelling inside your nose. Uh, the drug turns out the drug does not actually do this, but theoretically, this is how it's supposed to work. And then he said, you know, this is what congestion is. Congestion is when the inside of your nose is swollen. And I was like, wait, really? Wait, hold on a minute. I thought congestion is like when you have snot in your nose. That's right. why I'm blowing my nose all the time. Uh, so that's what got me started down this whole rabbit right. hole of the nose is way more interesting than I ever thought. It is indeed. I mean, writing that, I, you know, I live in Canada. Obviously, we're used to our colds. Right? I had no idea. I had no idea that's what happens when your nose is stuffed up. It's not It's not snot. It's actually swelling. And of course, when, when it turned out that phenylephrine wasn't effective, at least taken orally, to make that swelling go down... Well, of course, it doesn't work that well. I guess pseudoephedrine was the pre whatever it was before that was pulled from the being able to buy it over the counter. But uh, that was a huge story. So, you, but you found out afterwards that in fact you have one has two noses, which I suppose makes some sense since we have two eyes and two ears. But I don't think anyone, not many people, know that either. 
Yeah, that's right. At first, I was like, what do you mean we have two noses? I look at my face, I see one nose. Uh, but you really have to think about what's going on in the inside of your nose, which is that you have two nostrils, and each, is, each of the nostrils opens into a nasal cavity. And these nasal cavities really don't connect at all, uh, which made sense once I started thinking about it, because you can often have one side of your nose be congested, but the other side be perfectly fine, right? You can't breathe at all through one side, but you can breathe through the other. So it makes sense that there's actually two sides of the nose. Um, and they seem to, they, they work together. Together, but they're not necessarily working at the same time. One side is there's actually something called a nasal cycle where one side of your nose or one of your noses, so to speak, <laughs> is always partially congested while the other side is fully open. And then every, you know, every after a certain amount of time, say three to four hours, it varies by person by person, the nasal cycle changes over. So the other side of your nose becomes open and the other side of your nose becomes uh, congested. And so the two sides of your nose are kind of taking turns uh, working throughout the day. A symbiotic nasal system. I had, I mean, again, the nasal cycle, I suppose it's one of those things, once you learn about it, you never, you can never forget it. But I had no idea the nose operated on cycles. Yeah, I, I mean, it's not something you would normally notice, right? Because you're you're kind of just breathing and you're kind of just not even consciously thinking about it. Uh, but it kind of makes a little bit more sense when we are congested, when your nose inside of your nose is kind of all swollen, so that instead of just being you know partially obstructed on one side, it becomes fully obstructed. And then you're like, oh, I can't breathe through one side of my nose. Um, something that happens a lot to me, especially when I have a cold, is that in the middle of the night, like I can't breathe through one side, so I'm kind of like tossing and turning, and then you know I'll I'll lay down onto my left side and then after a while the right side of my nose will open up mm -hmm. and i had always thought this was because like the mucus was draining out of my nose or something that's, that's what i thought Yes, yeah. but that's not what happens. What actually happens is that there are receptors right under your armpit that activate this reflex, where if you push really hard under your left armpit, that opens the right side of your nose and vice versa. <laughs> I mean, again, and so, so in other words, if you wanted to clear your right, your right nostril, you would clutch like, and you, you mentioned this in the article, you'd clutch like a bottle or something under your left arm and then squeeze it until it happened. Yes. That's this remarkable. Is a hack that some people have suggested. I, by the way, I did try this myself. I found it did work, but it took a while, like uh, to the point where like my arm was getting a little <laughs> bit sore and I just kind of blew my nose instead. But yeah. if you just lay down, right, at, at, like at the middle of the night, for example, it is really effective when you turn from side to side. Right. So your arm, in other words, you end up with, with a stuffed nose and a tired arm. <laughs> <Since I'm laughs> exactly. <you. laughs> but it is remarkable that that's, that, that, that's actually somewhat effective. Um, and, and, and I suppose it also explains why constantly blowing your nose when you're stuffed up doesn't necessarily work, right? Yes, exactly. Um, it does help a little bit often, right? Like you'll feel a little bit less congested because the snot in there is making things worse, but you can blow your nose or blow your nose. And as long as the inside is still swollen, you're still going to feel congested, which makes sense because I've definitely had experiences where I've like blown really hard and just like, oh, there must be some mucus stuck back there. But no, it's actually just the blood vessels in my nose are swollen and blowing my nose is not going to do anything about right. that. You you had a, an interesting interview in in the uh, in the article as well where we don't really understand. I mean, I guess, I guess we don't think about uh, the no. Maybe the nose gets a little bit ignored. Is what I was what I was getting at here, um, because it is operating twenty four hours a day, so it has a little symbiotic relationship with itself to make sure that it's working at all times. But it's it's quite the little, as you point out, quite the little HVAC system as well. 
It is. You know, I, I always thought the nose was like the least remarkable part of like the, you know, organs on your face, right? Like, mm-hmm. like I think about my eyes or my ears or my mouth so much more. Um, but the nose is really the one out of all of these that's working 24 seven. That's one of the, that's one of the theories or hypotheses of why we have two. It's to give the other one a little bit of a rest. Um, so that they can kind of alternate during the day, like having two ACs running during their day. They can, one can rest while the other is on. Um, and it is really remarkable, right? In the space of a, you know, three or four inches in our nose, um, you know, when we breathe, the, the function of our nose, <laughs> we're like, what is the point of the nose? The function of our nose is to prepare the air for our lungs because our lungs are obviously inside our bodies. So they're, you know, they're very, very moist, uh, their body temperature. So what needs to happen is that we need to make the air that we breathe into our lungs uh, have a similar 100% humidity, 98.5 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't know exactly what in Celsius that is. Yeah, Apologies. 37 points. All right, there you go. Uh, yes. um, and so, you know, when we breathe air in, it's room temperature, it's maybe 35% humidity. By the time it gets to the back of our nose, it's gone up to like body temperature and 100% humidity in the space of just three or four inches. That's, it is, I mean, that in itself is remarkable. And it also, I mean, it explains also um, the, the nose cycles, as you pointed out, it explains why it, it's in constant, in constant use, right? Even though we don't actually pay that much attention to it. And we're not alone, right? I mean, other creatures have nasal cycles as well, I gather. Yes, yes. One researcher I told I talked to mentioned that in every animal where a nasal cycle has been studied, including cats, pigs, rabbits, dogs, rats, they all seem to have a nasal cycle. Um, you know, they all also have two noses. <laughs> they right. also are, these animals are also all warm blooded, so they need to warm the air as they go into their lungs. Yeah, so it seems to be like a pretty ancient mechanism that exists in our bodies. And, and going back to what we were talking earlier mm-hmm. about the, the armpit reflex, right? Like why why would that exist? Um, there's one theory that maybe this is a this is a survival mechanism, right? Because if you, if you think about if you're lying down on your left side, left side of your nose is more likely to be closer to the ground, maybe obstructed, whereas the right side of your nose is more likely to be open. So maybe if you lie down on your left, you want your right side of your nose to be open. Right. So it's very much in part, I mean, the body is kind of a, a miraculous thing in its own way, but this is very much a system that's, I mean, it's a functional system, just like your eyes are. Right? It's, it's, uh, it, it, has, it has a way of, it's there to keep you going. Um, did you find any solutions to the grand question that you entered all this with, which is how do I, how do I get rid of this stuffiness? <laughs> well, so I mentioned that the bottle hack or putting yeah. a crutch under your arm or just, you know, tossing from side to side. Um, I mean, I think the most effective thing is to take drugs, uh, not phenylephrine, as we've been talking about, but pseudoephedrine. Pseudoephedrine, um, right? Yes. So that that drug also works by um, uh, reducing the swelling inside your nose. There are also um, sprays that you can use that kind of basically work by the same mechanism. Um, I've heard that those are really effective. I have not used them myself. I still blow my nose a lot. I think just out of habit. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I like the idea, though, because blowing your nose a lot can, be, can get painful after a while. So if you just sort of use the bottle, <laughs> that sounds like a... And, and you said it actually did have... Like, like you can actually feel it happen when you... I'll have to try it out at some point. This is... But you actually felt it It can be kind of effective? It can be. You have to be a little bit patient. It's not like pushing a button and like instantaneous change. It can take really a few minutes. Um, I guess, you know, it's it, it's our body doesn't just have a switch. You asked me earlier about, you know, whether anything I found that was effective. Mm-hmm. One thing I thought was really interesting is that you can fool yourself into thinking that you're breathing, even if your nose is congested or clogged up. And that's because 
when we sense air going through our nose, what we're sensing is not really the air itself, but the coldness of the air. We have oh. these cold receptors in our nose. So you could actually trick yourself with menthol, right? So if you think, um, I don't know if you have Vicks Vapor Rub. In we Canada. do, yeah. Yep. Okay, yeah. So that has menthol in it. And um, some people say that that helps their congestion, even though it, there's really no physical mechanism by which it can make your nose less stuffy. But because there's that like kind of coolness effect that can make you think you're breathing, even though you're not breathing through your nose. Oh, it make it makes you it, it sort of it makes your nose feel like there's a window open, and so the air is coming in, right? Is that? Yeah, so? yeah, exactly. Wow. And there have been studies where people have actually, um, you know, if you give them like a, a menthol cough drop and have them hold their breath, they can hold their breath longer, possibly because it feels like they're still getting air in some way. Right. Well, that, so you started this, the phenylephrine is sort of how you got into this. Then you explored the nose. Is this taking you, do you have any more questions left to left to answer in all this? It seems, it seems almost infinite. Oh, well, you know, I, I was, I thought it was so interesting, this question of why the nasal cycle exists. And one of the, one of the other theories is that it's actually part of the immune system. Uh, right. So this is something I'm really interested in, which is that uh, when your nose, when the tissue in your nose is shrinking and expanding when it shrinks it actually excretes a lot of like plasma onto the surface of the inside of your nose and that plasma has a lot of antibodies in it it's a hypothesized that this nasal cycle just is like you know what seems like a very simple shrinking and swelling of the inside of your nose is really kind of a first line immune system right i guess i guess during covid we also i mean amongst other airborne diseases we also found out just how important the nose is right i mean it is our first line of in many ways it's it's a line of defense for something that we need quite obvious i'm going to state the obvious here and say that it's really the front line of defense when it comes to breathing right i mean in many ways Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, our nurses are really fascinating. I had no idea until I started going down this rabbit hole. Well, Sarah, uh, thank you for sharing the rabbit hole findings with us. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. 